1: Robert Warren Hart Jr. is a priest in the Anglican Catholic Church, the rector of St. Benedict's Parish in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He has been published in various magazines and journals and is the former canon theologian of the Diocese of the Chesapeake. He is the brother of David Bentley Hart and Addison Hodges Hart. I'm particularly interested in Father Robert's insights on how certain theological systems automatically impose a virtue limit on one's spiritual progress. Welcome, Robert Warren Hart, Jr., to the Grace Saves All podcast. Oh, thank
2: you. Glad to be here.
1: <laughs> I'd like to start out in kind of a general way and just ask you to, to describe your spiritual journey in life.
2: Uh, my age is just life. I mean, I've lived all these years, and I'm going to be 64, so... I won't be able to sing that song anymore um, from Sergeant Pepper's. But uh, <laughs> the uh, spiritual journey—I mean, I, I grew up believing in in Jesus and the Episcopal Church, but had a powerful sort of conversion in my early teen years. Same time Addison did, really, and um, well, mid-teen years. Now I think about it. So I've sort of been all over, including the charismatic movement back in the 1970s, into the 80s, I'd say. But I always be, be, I always took the Bible very seriously, and then I started to realize I needed to take the uh, tradition I had come from very seriously, because I had left it for about five years. I needed to take it very seriously mm-hmm. and and realize that Christianity is... Is ancient, and so I would absorb the uh, the t- teachings of the you know the Patristic Church, the Church as 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 it had understood the Bible. As for spiritual journey, I guess it's up and down. I've learned the hard way. Uh, that I'm a sinner, and that uh, I can't you know I need the grace of God constantly, you know, to overcome those those aspects that you know the, f- the world, the flesh, and the devil, but I would say a lot of my my journey in the last few decades has been to really come to understand the prevalence of the love of God and how that has to be reflected, must be reflected in our lives if we're to fulfill the purpose that, you know, why He has saved us in the first place. Excuse me, I bog for trying to chime in. She's, she's a deep thinker.
1: You were saying that you had a a revelation experience when you were in your teen years. And from that moment, when did you get to the point where your revelation began to include that God would ultimately save all in Christ?
2: Well, I want to point out that, okay, what I had was, I guess it's better referred to as a a conversion, a very powerful,
1: not to a different
2: religion, but to what I really, you know, had been raised to believe, but to, to really... I don't know, know, the best way to put it is, is it was personal at that point and became very real. I would not say that I've ever had any revelation that God would ultimately save everybody. I would say instead, and maybe I'm cautious about that kind of language because of the charismatic, you see, background that has put me in touch with Pentecostals and other people who say they have revelations. I haven't had that revelation as much as I have accepted the teaching that I believe really is what is in the New Testament, really is the doctrine of the church, really is consistent with what has been revealed in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, through the apostles, and expressed very well by saints and church fathers and again, i say especially Gregory of Nyssa, it was really, oh, I guess in the early 90s that I finally, I, I really discovered two things at the same time. Revelation, I guess, is an okay word, but only with a very small R. One was that um, through the influence of, a, of an Episcopal priest who was the rector of St. John's in Glendon, Maryland, named Philip Roulette, where I was a member in the early 90s, before I became a continuing Anglican and was ordained, uh, just simply helping me, I think, clear the rubble out of my mind with, you know, why what the Scripture really reveals is apokatastasis. What I hope I said that right. That word always is tough. <laughs> apokatastasis. You know? That that universalism is is really what what you find in the scriptures and if you get away if you change the clutter of translation problems and so forth this is what you get but it was also as I listened to him I realized I had never or else not for a very long time really been able to believe God would damn anybody to what they're now I like the phrase eternal conscious torment but he really did—the revelation, if I may to use that word—is that I realized that really wasn't what I believed in anyway. Because that's just not God. God is love, and and we can expound on why. that. I know there's people right now sharpening their uh, their knives. You know, if they hear me say a thing like that, thinking that it's just got to be heresy, but. I think my brother's psychology notion was correct. David's, and it all shall be saved. That Deep down inside, a lot of us never could really believe God has this eternal place of torment and punishment. How could we? We'd be trying to save people and save them from what? From sin and death? No, we'd be trying to save them from God, which is just not the gospel. So with a bit of help, I think what really happened was I cleared away rubble in my own mind to get to what I'd really come to see and believe, just from constantly reading scripture, reading the reading it in light of what the gospel has always really meant to the church.
1: Well, I think that you know this is interesting this word revelation is i grew grew up around. Evangelical Christianity, I guess, and I was scared off by its doctrine of eternal torment. And then I eventually found C.S. Lewis in a more gentle, reflective kind of faith. But it Actually, seemed I, like
2: yeah, that was was the great divorce. That was part of how I part of my path. Let's put it that way.
1: Well, I guess what it seemed like to me was that it seemed like, well, evangelicals and uh, Pentecostals folks could have revelations they could Mm -hmm. they could have they could have revelations but the in general the revelations always seem to be about how dire hell was going to be or and then and then it was left to to our side if you want to put it that way would just say things like well that doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. almost like we all we can do is we can reason our way to things but we can't have revelation we can't you know, we can't have that type of experience. So I guess maybe I like the idea that we can have a small, small R revelation, and that we can recognize that, that in some way, when we're in the midst of studying and reflecting, that there is this realization that comes over us that this can't be, this can't be who God really is.
2: Yeah, I mean, what was partly revealed to me was that I really had never believed. Or had not at least for a long time believed God could do that, and still be described by Saint John as agape. But the fact of the matter is, again, I want to say, it's. I don't believe a doctrine was revealed to me because you know I don't want anybody think I'm saying uh, I'll use the word revealed as, an I the, uh, the, I accept the light that's already been shining. But I believe that Apostasis is the revelation, and I believe there's no other reasonable interpretation of passages of Scripture, such as 1 Corinthians 15. So that certainly came from revelation. It wasn't mine. I'm, I'm the recipient of the teaching. but yeah.
1: Well, you sent me the beginnings of a piece that you're working on, which has to do with how certain theological constructions end up placing virtue limits on their adherence. And uh, I'd like to share some of the selected passages that I took from that and ask you for some further elaboration. So is that okay if we do that?
2: That's fine.
1: Here's the first little passage. You wrote, It is essential that we know God truly, and that requires putting away speculations from the carnal mind. For we shall proceed to no greater moral understanding nor acquire any virtue which makes us morally better than what we perceive God to be.
2: Well, it's quite clear from passages of the New Testament that we, in order to grow into our vocation as saints, we must acquire virtues. And, we, you know, there's a list of virtues, the classical virtues, but with the, the final three that are the most important, final meaning, I guess it, terms of a journey we're all on faith hope and charity and we know that the greatest of these is charity now if your theological beliefs are such that God could have created a universe with the intention of causing people to suffer forever then you don't really see charity in God. Now, you can rationalize and say, oh, I do, but he gives everyone freedom. Freedom from, my brother's already answered all this. I don't need to. I mean, Everyone should read that all shall be saved because they'll see the argument. You know, that's not freedom. If, if you're capable of choosing evil, you're not free, and God's not going to let you stay bound forever. So... If God is willing to create a suffering that involves no hope of ever coming out of it, where you know abandon hope all ye who enter here, then if you believe that, then you're going to be capable of, of doing great harm and evil, and still somehow imagining that that, that that's okay, that's acceptable. And you may indeed be able to love people and be kind and compassionate when many a situation calls for it. But I don't think that's the same as the virtue of charity. So I believe if our theological system that we embrace allows us to perceive what ultimately is cruelty in God, We're not going to acquire the virtue of charity because then we'd be greater than he is. And I I open that what I'm writing there with the psalm where the idol makers, it says they that make them are like unto them. And I believe that that is a limiting factor. What you believe to be the greatest, the highest, what you worship as God In terms of anything to do with goodness, justice, any moral understanding, that's as far as you can go. You can't exceed it. That's why I likened it to the universal speed limit, the um, speed of light. I believe there's a universal virtue limit. You'll only grow as far as your belief in God allows you to grow. Your understanding of God allows you to.
1: Well, I like this observation that you made. You said uh, the apostle tells us in that famous 13th chapter that without love, we are nothing. No amount of knowledge, understanding, good works, or spiritual gifts have any ultimate value unless we acquire the virtue of charity. Elsewhere, he calls it the bond of perfectness in Colossians three fourteen. If we are to be more than nothing— therefore and attain to charity we must exceed this psychologically imposed morality limit or the virtue limit we must have a true understanding of god as he has revealed himself in jesus christ
2: first corinthians of course is the 13th chapter I think everybody called on to that where saint paul writes about love and this case agape specifically the love of god that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, as he says to the Romans. And then he describes this absolute perfectness of character that that this love actually is. And the only way that we can really understand it is, I think, to personify it. We have to except the revelation of that love where we have seen it. And where we have seen it is in Jesus Christ. That's where we've seen it in its absolute perfection. So here's the thing. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That, that's the point I I've made there. And we have to look at what we see in him. So there's this, when I talk about a psychologically imposed morality limit or virtue limit, this is, I'm talking about something that's part of our human nature. We have to be free of a notion of God uh, that allows for anything but what we see in Jesus himself. If we don't see it in Jesus, then when we read the scriptures, then it's not in the Father either. It's not who God is. We have to. (laughs) He's revealed it in his son.
1: Well, I thought it was very profound when you said, if we are to be more than nothing, therefore, we must attain to charity.
2: The the problem I see with a lot of the people in that whole fundamentalist world, especially, but that I've seen in Christians and other other, uh, sorts of churches is, when they start to boast about their Christianity and get triumphal about it and believe themselves to be uh, special and privileged because they're king's kids, to use an old phrase from the 1970s, we're the king's kids. I think, you know, they, they've totally thrown away 1 Corinthians 13. It's like being proud if they're really believers. It's like being proud that you were born, which some people are, but it's ridiculous because uh, you didn't do anything. It's all a matter of grace given to you. But when I, I look at some of the triumphalism, especially of people who think that their faith, their beliefs are something that they should take pride in and that they can boast about and it makes them better than people who don't believe the truth yet. Uh, The fact of the matter is that there's nothing there of charity, which is the only thing that makes us authentic in the final analysis. Nothing else does.
1: I think this quote uh, from your article relates to this. You write... If we believe a theological system in which God's most important revealed attribute is power, or in which he had a plan to somehow be glorified by by the perpetual suffering of the lost, or in which our flawed notion of justice that so quickly lends itself to simple revenge, no matter how tortured or refined the rationalization, is reinforced to our satisfaction, or in which God's will can be divorced from his commandments to love him, and to love our neighbor, then we make God into nothing, for we imagine him as without charity.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if, if if the lack of charity is to be nothing, which is what's taught clearly by the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, then the God they worship is reduced to nothing if he doesn't have charity himself. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. this is important. What I want to emphasize there is they've created a system in which God's will is divorced from God's commandments. Now, the commandments of God, I mean, one's handing it, so there's 613 of them in the Torah, many of which, of course, are religious rituals and sacrifices and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, for Christians, we already know the summary of the law is very clear from Deuteronomy, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And from Leviticus, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus makes it clear this is the summary of the law. These are the two greatest commandments of the law. And now we come to a problem where God's will has everything to do with uh, all kinds of evil that he uh, preordained before the world. God's will involved that man fall into sin, that God himself preordained, that God's will involves eschatological things that require sin. Uh, we have we have two instances, and you may remember I mentioned these. Uh, one is when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, And he reveals to them at the end that he's not going to seek any revenge because he says, oh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to save, as it is this day, many souls alive. And this is, to me, a a beautiful story that foretells the suffering of Christ, betrayed by Judas, handed over by the the, uh, chief priests of the temple, the chief priest and the priest of the temple, and the crowd to the Gentiles to be put to death, the way Joseph was sold to the Egyptians, and so people will take that passage from Acts, where they pray, "Oh, that you know that these people did these things because uh, they were doing what you know to fulfill what your four had already uh, predetermined, etc." And they make it sound as though this means it was the will of God for all these sins to take place. By that way of looking at it, God willed that Judas betray Jesus. God willed that Caiaphas uh, and the priests stir up the crowd and God willed that they commit the sin of handing him over to Pilate, whereas Jesus says, "He that you know, deliver me to you," is the greater sin. It is definitely a sin, and so that all these details they see as God's will, and they take the same reasoning and they apply it to eschatological things yet to come. All these things are God's will, and I believe that uh, if we really examine what's being spoken of there, it's providence. And providence does not require that God will any of these details. It only requires that no matter what evil billions of free creatures, rational creatures are capable of doing, that God's will is still good. God's will will still prevail. You know, it's, it's, it's he's more than the master chess player. He's No matter what you do, Providence means he will make his will come about. It doesn't mean that he willed for Judas to sin. It does not mean that he willed for Caiaphas to hand Jesus over. But since they were going to do it anyway, and since men loved darkness rather than light, and here this perfect light had come into the world, and they couldn't stand the brightness of it, and therefore, in a sense, it was inevitable so that that he made use of this when the son obediently, willingly submitted to it and offered himself so that humanity would be redeemed from sin and death. But to say that God's will involves sin presents an automatic problem with what you believe God is. He, you, you suddenly have a psychotic sort of God in your mind. Does God reveal His will in those commandments? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And when He tells us to always forgive and to bless and curse not and all of these things, th- these are God's commandments. If you create a scenario in which God can will something other than what he has commanded, you have two problems. One, because what he has commanded is love. And that, again, I believe that's agape. That's the love of God. What he has commanded is love. You're saying he wills something that is contrary to love. If he willed for Judas to be the traitor, then that's contrary to love. He didn't love Judas, if that's what he willed. But God is love. So now we have a problem. Which is it? And again, the ability to incorporate into your understanding of the perfectly good God something that allows for evil does exactly what I'm saying, and it poses a limit on how far you're going to grow.
1: Another thing that you wrote is, we miss the mark greatly if we can speak of predestination without considering that God has forever willed the end from the beginning, and that in the creation, the genesis of his work and its end are all one work. This was very well summarized by my brother, Dr. David Bentley Hart, in his book, That All Shall Be Saved.
2: Yes, of course. He he's getting this from Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, the end from the beginning. I I've <laughs> when human beings start speaking about freedom and justice and all as we're going to do because we're people and and these are worthy and and you know significant things to discuss. We're still going to be limited by the fact that we're traveling in time. We're all traveling into the future, second by second, and we're we are seeing things from the perspective of of this very temporal existence we know, and so we we look at justice as a certain thing that, that is within this this. Process. We look at freedom as something that is limited to this temporal process that we know. And God is not bound to this time, this, this thing that we live in. He's not, He's not living in time. He is not bound by the rules of time. And with God, it's all a creation that he made from the very beginning. So to us, it looks like a work in progress. A work in progress is a mess. It's always a mess. So if you go into an artist's studio and you look up at the easel and you see a painting in progress, you don't know what it is you're looking at necessarily. You might see what looks like just Mm a mess all over the, the, the canvas, something that looks terribly disorganized. And you can make sense out of what you see. But what you don't see is the picture the artist does see in his mind. He saw it before he ever mm-hmm. even put that canvas on the easel. So so it is, I believe, the universe, creation, all of creation, is something that God has seen in its perfection, in its ultimate end. He's seen it, and he saw it. And I, I, even now I'm talking in terms of time when I say saw it, and that's a limiting factor. God's not in time. But the fact of the matter is, it's all one work. We speak of the beginning. We speak of the end. And there's a whole lot of Christians that are focused on what they call the end times. And they're they're looking out how things are supposed to Work out and they think they can read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, and all this stuff that's just not, it, they're not going to find fulfillment in the scripture and that. That's silly. But the fact of the matter is, they're, they're trapped in this and trying to make sense out of things that are eternal. And by eternal, I mean, I don't mean goes on forever, I mean is outside of time altogether. Where now we're talking about God with no beginning and no end. God sees the total perfection. I mean, I, when Leonardo uh, looked at the canvas that he was going to paint the Mona Lisa, he saw the Mona Lisa, that, and it's in its perfection. God sees the creation in its perfection, and we don't. So that, to me, is is something that does not allow for ultimately a hell that's eternal, uh, again, it allows for hell, but it doesn't allow for a hell that's eternal from which no one can be redeemed or saved, and nor does it even allow for people to be continually in bondage to what people wrongly consider the freedom to choose evil. And again, those, that argument was so well made by my brother, I don't need to make it again, and probably couldn't do it as well as he did.
1: It It helped me in thinking about time, uh, to learn that origin, his view was that God saw everything from beginning to end, and then instituted the ages or the aeons, so that things might develop and then come to their fullness within the within the aeons, within the ages, and then once the once the aeons or the ages reach their full conclusion then God will be all in all, and Origen thought nobody will be in any aeon anymore because we will be with God in that supra temporal reality from which the ages came in the first place. Yes. And in other words, I think in the early church, they were thinking about time differently. They were thinking about ages and aeons and yes. the end of the ages, but when they didn't think the end of the ages was the end of God. They just thought it was the end of God's purposes Particular purposes in the ages.
2: Well, also, what does the end mean? I mean, does the end mean it's over, like it does with a movie, or does it mean the purpose for which it was made? You know, the the end would be the purpose for which it is made. It's not define you know, at the end of the, the film. <laughs> it's not the, 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 that's yeah. All the is. <laughs> uh,
1: you, I like this you wrote. Uh, Jesus taught the way, and he also showed the way. He committed no violence. He never took anything from anyone, but rather always gave. When confronted with human deprivation, he was always moved with compassion. When asked for mercy, he healed. When faced with the hypocrisy and enmity of his adversaries, he always spoke boldly the words they needed to hear, knowing it would lead to his own death at their hands. When Judas entered the garden to betray him, Jesus called him friend. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Why did Jesus call his betrayer friend? It is because he had come to seek and save the lost. This is the divine perspective, the unchanging love that is without passions.
2: Yes. And I also want to point out when Jesus spoke harshly, by the way, we would think of the word harshly it was even that was motivated by love. He was he was definitely giving them the warning. Jesus called Judas friends when Judas was showing up not to be his friend, but to betray him. And yeah, I'd read that a thousand times, and, but it was when I was once listening to it on a good Friday. Sometimes if I have enough time, I like to... Assuming the day gives me the time, I like to just sit back and listen to the entire St. Matthew Passion by J.S. Bach. And I was listening to that, where once again the scriptures being recited, this time it's being sung. And Jesus says to him, friend, it's just, thought, why is he calling him friend? Yes, this is the divine perspective. You know, this is how he can be hanging on the cross suffering in a way that needs to be understood and still say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a sense in which he did not see anyone as his enemy. Not that he didn't know they were his enemies in their hearts and minds. Let me put it this way. He wasn't their enemy. He, He... Judas didn't come to be a friend, but Jesus calls him friend because from his perspective, this is still an object of love and compassion. And I know we're not supposed to say that. Oh, he's the son of perdition. He's the one who's, who would have be been better off if he hadn't been born. And yeah, I know all that. But Jesus called him friend. So what am I supposed to do with this? These people crucified him. And he says, Father, forgive them they know not what they do. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to look at the very people that were doing the worst thing anybody had ever done? And how am I to look at them? I mean, I, I have to say this was evil. This was wrong. I have to condemn it. But then there's another level. And this is where... We have to understand the difference between charity and all the other lesser forms of love that we are capable of without God's grace. We look at charity and it's, again, it's tied to that seeing the end from the beginning. It's tied to that divine perspective rooted in eternity that all of these people doing this horrible stuff are objects of a love that is beyond our ability naturally. Here is Jesus suffering. And now I want to say, let's even again move to the incarnation. Because what is so powerful in that passage is, that whole story is we can understand God forgiving sins from his throne on high where no harm can be done to God. You can't actually do anything that hurts God. You can't do anything that causes him pain or takes anything away from him. He's beyond harm, hurt, and danger but Jesus here is also fully human and he's submitting to violence, cruelty, hatred, mocking, schadenfreude. He's being treated not to physical pain but to psychological torment. And he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he's saying this not just in his divine nature which is not threatened or suffering, but the same person is saying it. and his human nature, is saying it. So the grace of God, he's letting us know, can pervade human nature. And we can become like him. To do that, we have to not read past these things. We have to really see that something as small as one little word,
1: friend,
2: is a powerful revelation contained within the scriptures.
1: You also write... Is what we see in Jesus, especially at the time of his betrayal and death, at all consistent with the treatment of eschatology and predestination that is so precious to so many in their theology? Is it at all consistent with the notion of God that includes an inscrutable plan in which evil is necessary and in which suffering is both forever and inescapable, and in which his own commandments, summarized by love, contradict the outworking of his will. For anyone to attain to charity, to actual holiness, it is necessary to get this right.
2: Huh. I like to make a reference to my other brother's, uh, one of my other brother's books, Addison, Hodges uh, Art, since he likes to use his name. Uh, and, uh, Addison uh, wrote a very, very powerful little novel. Called confessions of the Antichrist there's in it this the, the main character I don't know it's hard to call him a protagonist exactly although you know, he sort of becomes one by the end of the story but the, the man who according to all the theologians and just, you know all the experts and eschatology and theology according to all of their reasoning and, the, and everything that 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 Anything can indicate he is these. He's predestined to be the one that people call the antichrist, and therefore he's predestined to do all this terrible evil as uh, some somehow some necessary part of God's plan. But in the book, he actually has a conversation with Christ. I don't want to provide too much of a spoiler, but there's this one part where he basically says to the, to the person who's obviously Jesus Christ, the risen Christ appearing to him, he, he says to him, but I have to do all this evil. He says, what about the will of God? And Christ says, the will of God is for you to reject your destiny. I, I think my brother really got something really in there. I believe it was the will of God, for example, for Judas to, to uh, reject his destiny, not be the betrayer. Jesus I'm sure would have still died by the way on the cross and I'm sure that that the light you know the darkness still hates the light so much and 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 that he was and he was willing to go to the cross but I believe it is definitely uh, not the will of God for any of this evil to take place. and so Christians have this a lot of Christians have this, eschatology, that that in which predestination, I don't just mean the who's saved and who isn't, and but predestination in their mind, like the guy who falls down the stairs and says, I'm, I'm glad that part of God's eternal plan is, is, is over with. The, uh, the concept they have is that he has predestined that certain people have to do all these evil things because of some great purpose that he has. And without that, the kingdom of God can't come and all this nonsense. Well, if evil's necessary to God's plan, as something that had to be there from the very beginning, if that's the case, then we have to wonder about him. You know, what's his problem? (laughs) And I don't think... I don't think we want to imitate someone who's kind of psychotic that way, but that's not, that's not what I believe is revealed about God. I believe that he has suffered, he's allowed it for purposes that, that have to do with, with things beyond our understanding, but that any particular evil is somehow, some, by that I mean moral evil is somehow necessary. To God's will, then I, again, I believe that we're not going to attain to charity because we're we're going to look at a God who had the will for evil to happen.
1: Well, let's just go ahead and and kind of conclude things with this one uh, one quote um, that has to do with the final judgment. You write uh, the final judgment will not be a theology exam to make sure you have sufficient error-free gnosis to enter God's eternal kingdom. Such an image would put me in fear that I may be asked, like the characters in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, what is your favorite color?
2: I hope people understand the reference to that. We, we, I think the damage image we're given of really uh, anything that could become close called close to a final judgment is what I've already alluded to the um, the sheep and the goats, the the uh, parable of the sheep and the goats, and the parable of the sheep and the goats to me shows how in the incarnation the two great commandments of the law are combined. Uh, in Christ. They're combined in Christ in different ways. I mean, when the woman poured the alabaster box of ointment over him, this was an expression of love for God and for neighbor. I don't know if she knew that he was God at that point, but still, we know it from from, from, uh, what's been revealed since his resurrection and all that. But in the parable of the sheep and the goats, where however you treat uh, one, this one, is how you treat Jesus himself. In this, you have a combination of the two great commandments of the law that they really meld together, they become inseparable, which is pretty much in teaching with what John wrote in his first, what you see in the first epistle of John, about how you cannot love God and hate your brother. And again, it's not even hate, it's indifference, which is, a, I think, a kind of hate, really, where you can look at the suffering of the person who is hungry, the person who, who is naked, the person in prison who needs to be visited, the stranger who comes to you, if you're treating them with indifference, it's the same as hate because it's not love. So the final judgment to a lot of people to to, to use that phrase, because again there's eons and eons until the you know God's perfect will. But in terms of the final judgment, how you love God, if you love God is, is something that has been expressed in this life when you're confronted by the people who are the least of these, the least. Now, I don't, again, want to wax too political in a theological discussion, but I wrote something a few years ago called uh, Kittles and Quislings. We all know who Quisling was. There's also a guy named Gerhard Kittel that was a very important person in Nazi Germany. And Gerhard Kittle was actually academically brilliant, and from an early you know early age, really, uh, as a someone who could write the theological dictionary of the New Testament, and and put forth all of these things that were very well written, very well thought out, but then. He became an apologist for Hitler himself, for the Nazi regime and started constructing a a theological paradigm in which Jesus was really the ultimate Aryan betrayed by the Jewish people and so on and so forth. He became uh, the theological justification for Hitler. In fact, at the moment, I'm afraid I have to compare him to uh, the patriarch Krill in Moscow who seems to be imitating him. But I wrote this, this is before the uh, pandemic, this was 2019, because I got really tired of seeing Christian clergy and others making excuses for the way strangers, even illegal immigrants, but also perfectly legal asylum seekers, and here's an area where people have been terribly misinformed, well, the way these people were being treated by the Trump administration, and I'm going to say right now a lot of that's still going on, so the Biden administration doesn't get a pass either. But uh, the way they were being treated when their children were stolen from them, etc. And I had Christian clergy, Christian clergy, uh, arguing to justify this. And so I said, well, okay, we call traitors Quislings, And someday history may very well call... Clergy like you, Kittles. You know, you're like Gerhard Kittle. You're doing what he did. You're you're betraying the truth to, to justify this political evil that's being committed. But these people, I'm sure they all thought, well, I'm saved because I'm orthodox. I'm saved because I have the gnosis. I have the knowledge of of true doctrine and I adhere to it and I believe it. And that's that's not what they're gonna face when they get you know, when they stand before the king on when, when when they when they have to give answer for their lies. it's how did you treat the least of these? That includes if you had any way of helping people who were coming here to this country to seek asylum. This includes but Saint John Chrysostom said, "If you don't see Christ in the beggar at the church door, don't look for him in the chalice." Unlike my bro- brother David, I'm more of a preacher than I am, you know. An <laughs> you're about to get it. You're being treated to that. Right? <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. <laughs> I mean, on I guarantee you that just about every Sunday, you know, there's probably a million. People poverty stricken and show up at the door of a church. Had one yesterday. This is Monday, so I say I had one yesterday, which was Sunday. And well, she even looked looked poor. I mean, I could see that. I could see it and as soon as she came through the door. I knew she was going to be needing help. That it was financial in nature, you know, economic, a handout, and whatever else we could do for. Her. Well. If you're going to ignore these people, if you're not going to see Christ in the least of these, especially if they walk into your church and they're hungry, I don't want to hear any nonsense about how you believe in just the right doctrine about the the sacrament or whatever. None of that means anything if if you can't uh, see Christ in the least of these. And the idea that you're going to whistle past the graveyard, that is, you're going to look at this person in need and pretend you don't see him because it's not part of what you planned on when you went to church and you wanted to be comfortable, and etc. All of this is much more important than, you know, did you really understand the theology? Did you, under, did you understand the gospel correctly? God... If 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 it were a theological exam, I don't know that anybody would be saved. I mean, you know, I, I bet all of us have some really wrong ideas that we aren't aware of. Now we can we can understand doctrines, we can under, but we can not really understand God. We can understand the doctrine of the Trinity, but we'll never understand the depths of the heights of everything of of who God himself is, what the Trinity is, we can only know the doctrine of it as it's been revealed. We can understand that Christ died for our sins, even if we don't know how to put it perfectly, and he rose from the dead. And we we can believe all these things, but the test of whether or not you really believe it, and of course James says this in the second chapter of James, is how you treat Christ himself how you treat God in flesh, how you treat Christ himself when that very inconvenient individual who happens to be the least of these is the one who you're coming across. You don't realize it's Jesus. You don't realize that this is God coming to you, giving you an opportunity to show love. You know how to, Prostrate before the altar You know how to genuflect You know how to worship God on high Now do you know how to show love to God By showing love to your neighbor And by that I mean Do you really believe the word was made flesh And dwelt among us Because here he is Right now And he's got his hand out Because he hasn't eaten in two days And by the way There are people that poor Throughout the United States And I could write a whole book about that we live in a country with desperate poverty all around us. But um, fact of the matter is, there's, that's what is going to matter in the last judgment. Did you, did you love me by loving this person who you saw as the you saw? I mean, the least of these. What's well, that's a human judgment. He's speaking to you on your terms. This one you saw is the least. That's the least of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh,
1: <laughs> well, it seems it's it seems to me that. Uh, what's your dog? What's your dog's name? Savannah. That Roland made an appearance. Uh, Roland barked a, a good, uh, a little bit in my interview. One of my interviews with David. So. Yeah,
2: and he didn't really smell
1: um, like sorry. I, I'll, maybe I'll get. <laughs> he didn't really sound <laughs> like. It. Well, it well it seems to me that all of your passion about all of these things and about charity and love is fired by your sort of ultimate insistence that that God is love, that the creation was conceived in love, that there's nothing but love that ever came from God, and that God's ultimate purposes will only be completed when the entire creation is able to reflect that love in which it was originally brought into being. I appreciate your passion about all of these things and that it's not just a theological endeavor for you, but that it's about real people's lives. Uh, well, I look forward to you completing this uh, work that you're doing on about the, about the virtue limit, because I think these are the kinds of things we need to be reflecting upon. And thank you for spending some time with us in your day.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.